Every week on our regular episodes of Shift Shift Bloom, I get to interview people whose lives are very different from mine. And we talk about how each has navigated the twists and turns inherent in transformation. But I wonder, what's universal about how people change? What are the common threads, the connective tissue? I tend to look at change through the lens of my own experience, for the most part, the artist's life. Lucky for us, my curiosity is shared by the co-creator of Shift Shift Bloom, Dr. John Lyons, luminary and author in the field of clinical psychology and systems change. Who better to help me unpack all the questions that fill my mind when the interviews are over? I'm Kristen Sorelli, and you're listening to Shift Shift Bloom, TCOM Takeaways, my conversation with Dr. John Lyons about a recent interview. in the studio today with Dr. John Lyons, and we're going to fly back over my interview with Michelle McFadden, who had a traumatic brain injury, and see what John's perspective is on that. Welcome, John. Thank you. It's good to see you, Kristen. Good to talk to you. And that uh, was an incredible story Michelle told. So I wonder, though, you know her, right? I mean, so you have a relationship with her before. So what was that like for you, interviewing her? Well, I want to start by saying I thought it was incredible that she sat with me for two hours like Mm -hmm. every other guest who I leave as much time I block off about two hours for each guest just because sometimes it the conversation wants to go that long and I wasn't sure if she would be able to stay with me stay focused stay concentrated and she really did she really stayed with it and that in itself was a really impressive feat um, because I can only imagine how hard it is for her to really um, take all that in, not just not just share and talk back, but to take all that in that I was, was tossing at her. Um, but I've only known her for three or four years, so I've only known her as a person with a traumatic brain injury. But even in those four years, I've seen her improve uh, leaps and bounds in her uh, her physical life. The very first time I met her, she was still, her walk was still impaired, obviously. And it's not so much anymore. So I, I've seen her change in that way. Um, this is our first guest who you don't really have oh, any yes. prior knowledge of. So I wonder what jumped out at you. Well, I was actually found it... Uh inspiring and interesting and there's three things that really stuck out for me Uh, the first is that concept that you don't recover you know because recovery language is such a big part of behavioral health and substance use kind of dialogue but i thought what she said was profoundly important and really needs to be thought about in that context i was thinking about it in the lives of the people i know family members um myself included, who have struggled with psychiatric issues. And do you actually recover or do you learn how to adapt to them? And so maybe the recovery concept, although it sounds really good, it sounds nice, it sounds inspiring, 
it's actually aspiring to something that's not real. It's aspiring to something that doesn't really exist because you're not going back to something that you would have been or were before. You're going forward to a version of yourself that is actualizing what you want to be in your best life. And so I just found that absolutely fascinating to think about and to listen to how she talked about it and etc. So, Yeah, I thought that was... It wasn't... I guess it was unexpected. It was unexpected to hear her bring up addiction Mm -hmm. and then relate it to recovery and then bring up um, the reveal later on in the show where she said, you know, one of the biggest positives was that this accident and injury stopped her from going down a path that she would have surely gone down. Um, I had no idea that that was part of her story. None whatsoever. So knowing her, I'd never kind of been privy to any of that information. And I really appreciated her sharing that because I think it's revealing and just important. I think a lot of people are going to respond to that. Yeah, and it's, and it's like, okay, so her head injury helped her recover from her substance. It doesn't make sense, right? It's just not, it doesn't appear to be how it works, right? So there's, mm. there's the issue of... Uh, because of her head injury, she doesn't get the same pleasure or enjoyment from the alcohol, and so that she doesn't yeah. have that problem now, and that's a that's a good thing. So, I think that was fascinating how she's. Uh, I mean, to be a cliche, she's made uh, lemonade out of lemons, right? She's taken mm-hmm. what she has and made it into something special and something good, uh, and I think that's just a beautiful story. That's a beautiful part of that story. Yeah. You said there were three things that stuck out to you. What, what are the other two? The other was the second one was her acceptance of help. The concept that yes, I need help because it's really true of all of us, right? It's, every single one of us cannot survive on our own, and yet, particularly in the U.S., we have this sort of false notion of individuality. This false notion of that it's about me. It's about me doing what I want to do and when I want to do it and how I want to do it and all these kinds of things, but truth be told, we're all interdependent. We all need each other for all sorts of things, you know, even just to make sure the roads are paved, you know, the all sorts of ways in which we're interdependent on each other. So I thought that was a really interesting insight on her about how she she was very independent and very focused on being um, the independent uh, and that, you know, she... As you commented, I think in an aside, uh, the confusion of financial independence with emotional independence and the concept mm. of interdependence versus dependency are all interwoven in this kind of complex fabric of, of relationships. And so I thought it was uh, interesting how she thought about recognizing that she needs help and that she likely always will need help. And that's not a bad thing. That's actually a good thing. That's a positive part of her journey. Yeah, I appreciated that she she kind of brought in that question of would this all have changed with time regardless of the injury? And it's really, it's just a question that hangs there. It's like, yes, as we get older, we probably are going to need more help than maybe we do when we're in our prime. But if we have no experience in asking for that help, where are we? You know, where are we left? And um, 
Yeah, I think, you know, like I said, I didn't know her before, but the stories that she tells lead me to believe she never asked anyone for anything. So to have such... Well, she said uh, she knew everything. (laughs) Yeah, knew everything and and could do everything. You know, it was capable of everything, especially, gosh, when you're an athlete, that is a feeling. You know, I've, I don't call myself an athlete, but I've run half marathons and, um, I've, I've done physically demanding things and that's such an empowering feeling, you know, and to have that taken away, you have to learn how to ask for help. There's no other choice. There's no other choice. I think you made a good point that running in particular is a very individual kind of thing. But if you're a competitive athlete, you have to have a kind of a controlled aggression of wanting to win, right? You have to be Mm. competing. You have to be, I'm better than the other people in that sense. I mean, you could be just competing at yourself, but then you really wouldn't be an athlete. You'd be somebody who's interested in fitness. And if you're Mm -hmm. an athlete, then you're, by almost definition, you're in competitive sports of some type. And if you're going to be competitive, then you need to figure out that how to win. Otherwise, you're not, you're just into fitness, which is great. I mean, there's nothing absolutely wrong with that. But if you're a competitive right. athlete, it's a completely different mindset. So I thought that was an important insight, actually, for all of us. You know, I think about, even in my job, you know, I run a center, and I have a lot of faculty and staff. And the way I think about myself is I really can't do much of anything that we do <laughs> at the center, right? It's in, and I am completely reliant on other people to do it. Otherwise, the center doesn't work, and it doesn't really do things that are helpful and productive for others. So I think that it's probably true of every single one of us in every aspect of our lives is that we need help. I mean, even in this podcast, we couldn't do it without Tim, right? No. Then Tim couldn't do it without us. Right. (laughs) Right? I mean, there's this interdependence, which is should be embraced. I mean, it's actually a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Because I didn't yeah, I hear think... her talking about it as dependence. She just, I heard her talking about it as interdependence. And she talked about the fact that she can cook. She can do other things, like in her story about her sister. Right? Yeah, she did not use that word. And she it did not have that feeling to it or that sense to it. It had the sense that she... Getting taken out of her environments of comfort, which were work and athleticism and being put in this different environment on top of the fact that she also had, it has a traumatic brain injury, just demanded collaboration. Mm -hmm. Maybe, and before she hadn't had to collaborate, she could be a sort of solo artist, you know, she could fly solo. And she no longer really had that option or luxury, and she had to adapt. That's how I think of her, because she's still very much, um, truth be told, like in the kitchen, she is an amazing cook. Uh, You always leave her kitchen and her meals just going, ah, A, I want to make that. B, she makes it look so easy, and I know it's not. C, that is so delicious and, and nourishing and how did she do it? But she doesn't because she knows when she has to say, can you get me that or can you do this? Um, which I bet she didn't do before. I bet she was completely, you know, um, 
that chef who wasn't, you know, wasn't didn't have a sous chef. Right. So, right. yeah. Well, the C and TCOM is collaboration, so it was, it was positive for me to hear that because that's really kind of what we focus on and, and emphasize. So that's all good. Tell me the third thing that the stood third out. The thing is that it sounded like that her head injury created an opportunity for what I would describe as a reset. That mm. and and it was interesting to think about. Like I was struck by her talking about seeing leaves for the first time and just yeah. enjoying the newness of things and how she'd be perfectly happy sitting on the porch and looking at leaves. And so there's a, there's a whole lot of different things that you can unpack from that that are interesting and important in terms of, you know, just appreciating the moment, you know, being mindful. I mean, I mean, okay, so now we know that a head injury can lead you to recovery from substance from alcohol, and now we know that it's a mindfulness intervention? I mean, is this, is this the reality, right? So it's interesting, right, because a lot of people seek that kind of way of being, and she just found it as a result of something that was forced upon her. Mm-hmm. Um, and she may not actually be at different stages in her own kind of trajectory of her brain responding. She may not be able to do certain things, right? And so it may just be a natural result of the trajectory of the head injury and the brain uh, response. But it's interesting, right? Because that is that's a mindfulness. That's what people say is related to being happy and healthy and relational and all, all sorts of kinds of stuff, what she was describing. So being able to live in the moment is a gift. And so it sounded like, I mean, that she really wasn't very good, that that skill set really didn't exist pre-injury. And now she's exceptionally good at it. Um, mm. Almost in a way that re- reminded me of children, right? That when mm-hmm. it, so, And there was also the piece of it that it, brought a lot of fear sometimes because she didn't know what was going to happen or what something was. And and so I thought about what that's like for children, the same kind of mm-hmm. thing. Said, and so appreciating that fact that kids are naturally mindful, and so therefore they are very aware that they don't know what's going on and therefore might be fearful of certain things that are new, I think as adults and as parents we probably should remind ourselves of that reality. Yeah, when she was talking at that point, th- those those points you're referencing, I just wrote down the word. I kept writing down the word Zen. Zen. Mm-hmm. She's so she's so Zen, you know, she's she's mm-hmm. a living, breathing example of like you said, you know, there's a whole multi-million dollar industrial complex out there trying to get us to meditate and to <laughs> be in the moment and to and to watch time go by and She's living it now. Would she ever have chosen this path towards getting there, or would she have ever even wanted to to try that path out? You know, prior, I don't know, but it was like, oh yeah, that's exactly. I wonder if she realizes how many people aspire mm-hmm. uh, to be able to do to bring the simplicity and the mindfulness and the awareness of the small things in life to their days that she now has. That's interesting. I just, I, I, I'm fascinated by that because she clearly 
loves that part of her new self, which is great. Yeah, she's. Um, we didn't talk too much about her dogs, but I know you and I have talked about how several of uh, our guests have mentioned their pets, and she is really active. She has two dogs that are her own, and she's constantly bringing in a foster for the Buckeye uh, Bulldog Rescue. So she has these adorable um, French Bulldogs, usually, and they're just, you know, the house is just filled with that sort of sad, I don't want to say sad, that rescue dog energy, you know, that Mm -hmm. energy of um, creatures who really need help and... Mm -hmm. Uh, are fearful, I think, a lot, you know, and have uh, things that they're worried about and things that they're afraid of for no other reason than that that they haven't learned learned to trust or been in a in an environment that supports trust. And so it's just interesting to watch, to think of her as this IT professional who was calling the shots and knew everything, and kind of seeing her in her new habitat, which is. You know this dog home and this food home and this garden home. It's so it's everything so organic in her life. I feel like as as I know her. Yeah, pets are so important, and and you know dogs in particular. You know they live in the moment, right? So dogs have mindfulness down, right? So they they're zen. Um, they also you know live what we all should do. If they see something, they say something, right? So they yeah. they live in a way that uh, many of us aspire to live, right? So I think that's yeah. a very healing. We have a, a group that's doing a project in the center, and what they found is that they're doing a, a study of organizational climate in residential treatment for kids, and they're mm. looking at the staff, and the staff's kind of stressed and burnout. And they mm. found that those centers that had animals, big animals, uh, staff was less stressed, actually significantly uh, less stressed, less likely to burn out, less likely to leave. If there's an animal, right? It's like, wow, that's who would have guessed that? But I think the power of the animal human relationships is um, an un, it, it's a frontier that we've known about outside of science for millennia, but mm. it really hasn't, hasn't gotten um, all that much. It's getting more, but not all that much scientific study. And it, I think it's fascinating. To, I mean, there's, research that shows that horses and humans, their um, heart rates uh, mm. blend together so that, they, that actually horses help humans self-regulate if they're having stress and so forth. So you wonder if there's not the same kind of phenomenon with dogs is that they help people self-regulate. And particularly with a head injury, since head injuries are oftentimes associated with uh, regulatory challenges. Although she didn't really talk much about those, she talked way more about the cognitive challenges. Um, I just wonder if that if her pets are not helpful for in that in that regard that she helps them regulate and she, they help her. Yeah, I think they do. I think I think it goes both ways. You're right. I had a question about something that she said. She mentioned a couple of times being in what she called denial, like not wanting to visit the. Um, box of letters that she had received, not really wanting to go to emails, not asking questions of her family about what had happened exactly, or um, even parts of her treatment and her care. And I just wondered if you made anything from that 
from your perspective. To me, I, I, I thought, oh, I wonder if denial can actually be an aid sometimes in helping us move through something that is traumatic or just just make change. Can, can actually denial or choosing not to know something be helpful? I, I think yes. I think uh, if you look at the the folks who did the the um, soldiers from World War II, that okay. when they came back had the best recovery, are, were oftentimes the ones who simply refused to think or talk about it. They just put it, compartmentalized it, and moved on. You know, I have a, a personal experience on that dimension that that came to mind when she talked about that. So when I was, uh, I don't know how old I was, maybe eight or nine. I'm riding back from swimming or basketball or something practice, and I rode into a swarm of locusts and I crashed my bicycle. <gasps> and I got a head injury, and I, I walked, apparently, I don't remember the accident, I remember uh-huh. the locusts, and, and then apparently I told my mother that some lady helped me up, and I, the bicycle was rather mangled. Um, and I got, I got home, and my mom said, well, here, have a popsicle and we'll sit down and watch the Donna Reed show. Now, <laughs> most of our listeners, listeners are too young to know Donna Reed, but it's like the Brady Bunch for somebody in your age. I don't know what, mm-hmm. what it would be now. Um, yeah. But it's a very common TV show. And I apparently, and my mom is a fairly honest woman, I think, apparently I watch it every day. I could never watch it again. I never wanted to watch it again because... The concept was it's too bizarre to watch something that you think you might have seen but you can't remember. It's just bizarre. It just I just didn't want to do it. I had no desire to see something again as if it was for the first time. So uh, I can wow. understand. It's like, well, that was then and this is now and I don't really want to know about then because that's not me or who I am. I just want to move forward uh, with who I am now. So I don't know. I mean, that, that came to mind with that. So I... I thought it was probably healthy. I mean, I don't know what she would gain from knowing that. I mean, she'd know that people cared about her, but they cared about the other her, and she is now a different her, right? I mean, she's evolved mm. in a particular important way, I think. So, I don't know. I, I, I found it likely healthy. Yeah, that what you're saying also connects to, I think it connects to what you've said and what she said very explicitly about um, when she's moving too fast or when she has moments where she starts to, as many of us do, list all the things that they need to get done in a day and your mind just starts to, to go really fast. And she said, oh, I have to remind myself, that's just the past me, like creeping up and into conversation with the now me. And it, it was such a great example, I think, of her just strength of will to just go, I'm sorry, past past self. You don't get a seat at the table anymore because, you know, new self is having a much better time here taking a walk with my husband. And it's not that's not denial, but it is a decision, a really active decision to compartmentalize, like you said, to just not allow a thought to enter the room. I can't help but think that's a fundamental principle of sustaining change. Mm. That, because if we know anything about change is that it's very hard to sustain it, right? You can mm-hmm. you can say, I'm going to, it's like you don't quit something, you stop. And then you decide each day that you're still going to stop. And you get this yes. creeping. So I'm, on my 
hemoglobin A1C just crept up to 6.3, so I have to give up sweets, right? And it's hell for me personally, because I love sweet things, right? So, uh, but I have to decide every day. Like, I just went to the grocery store yesterday, and I'm in the bakery section, because the very first section, which is very clever on the part of grocery stores, because mm. if, you know, if you go when you're hungry, the first thing you see are baked goods. Um, and I had to linger there. But then I had to tell myself, you know, it really reminded me a lot of how Michelle was talking about. You know, new me does not need a donut, right? Yeah. <laughs> as much as the old me would have wanted one and said, oh, no, I deserve a donut. I can have it. As long as I just have two donuts, it's okay. You know, that kind of stuff. So I think that is likely that kind of notion that you have to suppress your old self if you're going to sustain a new version of yourself is probably a principle that we can take home from these conversations and how you actually make a change. This was also interesting, as you pointed out, this was the first of our interviews that the stimulus of the change was forced upon Michelle. It wasn't her choice. It wasn't her vision of herself. But I thought, despite that, the similarities are pretty profoundly important. Yeah, what other... What other similarities or threads did did you hear between Michelle and Jordan, DeLacy, Rachel, and Juliana? I think we'll get to before this episode with Michelle airs, so I think we can talk about mm-hmm. that too. Yeah, I thought humor. I thought uh, most of yes. uh, folks use humor to survive. Yeah, right. And I think that's that's great. Um, so I think that's a core concept. I think a and a new version of a vision of yourself is also a common theme, that people have a kind of a sense of who they are aspiring to be, and they use that as a template to um, make their decisions or to guide them in, in how they approach things. I think that's been consistent across our guests. And just kind of this, um, and it'd be interesting to talk to some folks who weren't doing real well, because all of our guests have been amazingly resilient, amazing mm. grit, amazing, um, mm-hmm. you know, if they get knocked down, they get right back up. I mean, fierce, although it's hard to call Michelle fierce. She seems like the sweetest person in the world, but but I suspect she's fierce, right, in terms of her insistence on getting better, insistence yeah. on mastering things, and, and she's not going to give up. She's just, if it took takes her two hours to move the rock on the patio, she's going to spend two hours and move the damn rock. And yeah. and I think that's been consistent across everybody, is that, is that when they put their mind to doing something, they do it, um, and they don't let things get in the way, stopping them from it. Even if it's not easy, even if it's not perfect, even if it's not at the time frame that... Uh, other people would want, they get it done. I think what you're pointing out is also extremely counterculture. And in, in a way, kudos to us for getting these guests <laughs> to have our examples of long-term change, like not quick changes, not lives that have necessarily um, supported quick change either. Mm-hmm. And so just, yeah, you you reminding me about her talking about moving the brick, it's like, the amount of patience this woman has or has yes. developed um, just to make really ultimately what are very small changes, you know, especially physically, um, it's, it's just remarkable. And she, she talked about pace. She talked about when I go too fast is when 
the aphasia kicks in or I just can't keep up, I can't process. And I, I thought, yay, that is so counterculture too, just this idea of, um, and it's, it's something that Jordan talked about, um, just being patient with time unfolding and being patient with uh, that you're not always in control. You might want something to happen one way, but it's not going to happen that way in that moment necessarily. And can you live with that? Can you accept that? Can you let time go by? Yeah, that whole concept of acceptance. I mean, you sort of used it and then took it back. Um, and so, I, and I can understand your ambivalence about that word. Um, but there's a, there's something there that we probably need to learn how to put a description on that's not so glib. Um, that it's about, you know, exactly what you described, figuring out how you understand who you are and are comfortable with that or happy with that. I would note that of all the folks you've interviewed to so far, when you got to that rapid-fire answer, what would you change in your life, she did not say, I would be on a different street corner so I didn't get hit by the car, right? She did she not didn't. say that, right? I mean, so if anybody's going to say something like that, I would imagine it would be somebody like in Michelle's circumstance, but that is not what she would change. She would not go back and not have her accident. She'd actually go back and address food issues, food insecurity for children who have substance use problems. So um, I was I was struck by that. So that actually is everybody so far, right? That uh, you are who you are, kind of component of people who do big, sustainable change. And I mm. think that might be an important theme. Yeah, you're reading my mind with that because as I was asking that question, as I was, the rapid fires, I pretty much have, you know, they're standard. I might tweak them just a tiny bit for each guest. But as the words are coming out of my mouth, I'm thinking, how can you possibly ask her this? Because of course she wants to not have been hit by a car. And then she just says, nothing to do with that. You know, nothing she says this other thing. And, and she wasn't even aware that that would be like an expected response. Right, so it's not yeah. like she was faking it, right? She didn't say, "Well, most no. people would say this," but I will. No, no, she did. She didn't even go there. It didn't even occur no, to her. No, it wasn't. Right? It wasn't a thought. Um, right. Which that is also, I think that's actually extremely healthy. Yeah, right. Because imagine, the, imagine the desire to want to go back in time and change something that's unchangeable. That's like the okay. definition of hell. Yeah. Exactly. So. Uh, that also was a piece that struck me most personally, is I mm. think it, in combination with what she talked about losing her being judgmental of others. And so I don't, I mean, I've published on dramatic head injury, right? I've, I've done some research on it, but I never really thought about it at this personal level that she mm. described it. And I must admit, I felt a little embarrassed for myself or ashamed of myself for how I would uh, perhaps judge people in that sense, right? Of like, oh, I'm sorry that you don't have those cognitive abilities anymore as if it's some sort of deficit or something when that's not how she sees it, right? I mean, she sees this is who I am and this is what I'm living with and this is how it works. And I think that's important for us all to kind of understand as we look at other people in different circumstances and not yeah. judge them as, oh, poor them. Like one of the things that irritates me enormously is how some people talk about vulnerable children. But if you actually talk to the children, they never describe themselves as vulnerable. And so yeah. there's this 
elitist lens that we sometimes put on other people who have struggled. And I think she brings to that out in the open as something that's probably not a very good way for us to be. Even if we care about doing right for people in need, that doesn't mean feeling like they're somehow lesser because they have those needs, that they're somehow damaged, that they're somehow vulnerable, that they are people and they are working to be their best selves within the context of their existence. And that's profoundly important. Yeah, and in fact, when you when you take all that you've just offered there and you kind of put that over the landscape of, of all of our guests, I think those quote-unquote vulnerable children or those quote-unquote children who've had trauma are extraordinarily resilient, change-making adults. Um, all of our guests so far have, have either had, talked about, or alluded to some things in their childhood that were less, less, less than ideal. Right. And have had impact on them, admittedly so. And yet they're, they've all been so brave in facing those things and l- living differently because of those things. Yeah, and that's probably true of most of us, I suspect. Mm-hmm. Right, and all of us, I mean, some of us are... are uh, I mean, we all have different circumstances, right? But we all have circumstances, and those mm-hmm. circumstances flavor who we are and who we become. And I think it gets tempting to judge those circumstances, and that's probably not a very good idea. It's just, it is what it is, to use a cliche, that, uh, and people adjust. And our, our job then in, in helping people is to help them learn number one, who they are, and then how they can uh, live within that context. So, I think. I mean, that's, that's what I would take home as a message from that. Mm. It sounded like her health care was quite good, that her I think it was quite blessed in that sense. I thought it was kind of her to advocate for better health care because the U.S. system is so uneven that I'm sure there's people from less privileged backgrounds that would not be having a conversation with a neurosurgeon. So, Yes. When you think of her story, is there one image or one metaphor that you take away more strongly than any of the others? I think the reset piece of it. I'm, I'm calling it a reset. She didn't call it a reset. But the, the tabula rasa, you know, that's the starting over again, however you want to describe it, I think was the most profoundly uh, moving piece of it and the fact that you don't recover. I think they they go together, actually. So, because you're starting anew. So you're not going back to what you were. You're, you might be going back in some ways in terms of function, but you're not in any way going back in terms of identity or anything remotely close to that. Yeah. So I, I, I think that's profoundly important, and that's going to stay with me moving forward. But I think that has applications for a lot of what I've been trying to do, both personally and professionally. Mm. I think no matter how many times I listen to her episode, I always get moved, and I always learn 
again, over and over, I learn in the moments that she's talking about going up and down the spiral staircase mm-hmm. and needing those three points of contact or two points of contact, the the center rail and the rail on the side. And I, I always walk away from the episode holding onto that image. Like, don't forget, you know, look for the center rail and look mm-hmm. for the side rail. And it's, it's like you were talking about the, the, the C and TCOM being collaboration. If it's not a literal support, um, it was a great little nudge for me to look for su- the support system, whatever that mm-hmm. m- might mean. Yeah, I think it's different for different people at different times. I think for the same people, it changes over time, right? So it's it's an ongoing kind of um, movable feast, right? Mm. And so if you kind of approach it as that, and you've got people coming in and out of your life, I've been thinking about that quite a bit because I have a number of elderly relatives, and you know that's as you get older, the number who, of people who care for you changes and you don't know mm. them right and you don't know them at all they come and go and yeah. you don't know them right and but you still need them uh, and you need them for different things and you need them in a way that you've never needed anybody since you were an infant um, so it's just a, an interesting kind of way of thinking about life and the people who are always circling around you yeah well this has been really illuminating both the conversation with Michelle and reflecting on it with you. So thank you for your perspective. And I look forward to our next flyback. I do too. It's always interesting. I mean, we've been so lucky to have such inspiring and compelling guests who have inspiring and compelling stories. Yep. We've got a few more coming up. So I hope our listeners will keep on listening and we'll keep making uh, good episodes, I hope. All right. Sounds good. Look forward to chatting. Take care. Talk to you soon. Shift Shift Bloom is a co-production of TCOM Studios and Actually Quite Nice, engineered by Tim Fall and hosted by me, Kristen Sorelli. Episodes are available wherever you download your podcasts and are made possible by listeners just like you. Please consider supporting our work by visiting us at patreon.com forward slash shift shift bloom. Shift Shift Bloom is made possible in part by the Prade Foundation, a nonprofit organization committed to improving the well-being of all through the use of personalized, timely interventions and provider of online training in the TCOM tools. TCOM is Transformational Collaborative Outcomes Management, a comprehensive framework for improving the effectiveness of helping systems through person-centered care. Online at pradefoundation.org and at tcomconversations.org. And by the Center for Innovation and Population Health at the University of Kentucky. Online at iph.uky.edu.